If somebody asked you 10 years ago, what would revolution today look like to you? You would have deep racial divisions, media split down the middle, false information, narratives, rioting, looting protests, an unwillingness of authorities to either deal with them or an inability to deal with them. We have some or all of those things going on. I think we have to talk about McDonald's first. What really happened? We get a call from an informant and says, McDonald's Monopoly games are corrupted. There's a guy named Uncle Jerry who's arranging for winners and stealing the pieces. A lot of just nose to the grindstone investigative work. We went up on a wiretap, tied it all together. You were a member of the SWAT at the 1993 Branch Davidian siege in Waco, Texas, and you were there for 51 days. What do you think they need to do to recover from this and gain the credibility again? Like a business, it's critical to have a good reputation. I hope we can recover from it. Do you still follow the news of what's going on or no? You know, certain things are stressful to watch. Some of the footage of, of the rioting and looting hits close to home. And I was a SWAT guy, I love this shit. Could George Floyd's event have been prevented? I think with a lot of these cops who, who really go bad, it was always it was always something there. A lot of these guys, cops, are uh, not worried about somebody holding them accountable. So the question is, how did we get here? How did we get to where every small town police department has fancy tactical stuff? They fuel the narrative of defunding the police. So today my guest is Chris Graham. Let me, let me kind of set this up so you know how this thing works out. So imagine you wake up, you go to college, you get out of college, you become an accountant, and you've taken the safe route. And then all of a sudden an event happens in your life that you decide to go from being an accountant to an FBI agent. And then you do that for 26 years. And then you become a SWAT. And then you work undercover. You do all these other crazy projects we'll talk about. And then one day you're a supervisor in Jacksonville working as an FBI agent for white collar crimes. And you get a call. An informant calls in and says, hey, I think you guys got to look into uh, what's going on with McDonald's. And they say, what do you mean? There's this guy named Jerry Jacobson who apparently has taken $24 million, swindled $24 million over a 24-year period with the old McDonald's Monopoly game. And that leads to a six-episode six series on HBO called McMillions. And today, we're talking to the main character named Chris Grand that's going to unpack this for <laughs> us. And I don't know if he's going to inspire some of you guys to want to be FBI agents, or uh, some of you guys may never go back to McDonald's. But we're going to find out the story here. So, Chris, <laughs> thank you so much for being a guest on Vitamin. Awesome. Thanks. Honored to be here. Thrilled. So, so first of all, why from accountant to FBI? I mean, what, what happened there? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, and I appreciate you asking it because unlike a lot of young people today, when I went to college, um, this was in 1980, 90, early 80s. If you remember, the economy sucked. I mean, especially coming out of the 70s. And if you, you needed to get a job, I wasn't going to college to experience anything other than getting getting some piece of paper that would land me a job and at the time be, being an accountant was was a, a way to do it i got out very easy it, it seemed it seemed you know that it came naturally took the cpa passed it blah 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 uh walked into work uh, at a big eight accounting firm it was big eight back in the day and i would tell you by lunch on the first day I knew I hated it, I was miserable, and I needed to get out and do, do something else. So being whatever, you know, sticking with it, stuck with it for three, four years. And at the time, the FBI was, was looking at and hiring a lot of accounts, a lot more than usual, because of the savings and loan crisis in the late 80s. Mm. And I had some friends who, who had kind of left, joined, went into the FBI, and it just, it, it, it intrigued me, and it, it sort of fit. You know, one thing led to the other. And, you know, I still remember first day showing up at, at the Academy at Quantico and, and just feeling, you know, this is it. It, it, it fits. I was right at home. So um, and then, you know, looking back now, it's, it's it, 26 years goes by fast. Um, looking back on it now and looking at all the all the all the experiences and things and you know, I'm looking at like plaques I have on the wall from this, this experience, that experience. Um, you know, I, I, I am, I consider myself one of the most lucky people on earth to have stumbled into that. And, you know, now 
you know, now, now can sit back and, and, and relive Talk some glory days. Yeah. You know, but, that's the greatest part about it. You know, the accidental, there was a book that was written, the first Apple book that was written, the story of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak was called The Accidental Millionaire. And they wrote another book about Zuckerberg that started Facebook, The Accidental Billionaire. If you ever write a book, you should title it The Accidental FBI Agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing, I mean, frankly, growing up around D.C., which I did, government employees didn't have a, a great reputation. So going that direction was, was completely against my parents' wishes and, and some others. So, but you're right, accidental, just, just happened, to, happened to be lucky and, and watch, watch the bank robbery happen once, and that's, that's all it took. I, I don't think a lot's changed since the time you were growing up to now with Comey and McCabe and what's going on today. You know how FBI agents are seen. Uh, I, I don't think FBI agents have the kind of trust and credibility they had a long time ago. It's, it's a very weird time right now with FBI agents. It's a, it's a damn shame. And, and we'll come back to McDonald's because, you know, or McMillan's, I want to talk about that. But I'm glad you asked about, you know, about uh, the, the image and then and now. And like, like any business, the FBI is a brand and an image. And we, when I started and, and throughout my career, we relied on that image to get access, to get somebody to talk to you, to knock on a door and, and you're standing there in a suit and you, people are gonna tell you things because they believe, rightly or wrongly, they believe in the, the, the professionalism of the agency, the trust, the, the things like that. And, and we got, it was critical. We couldn't do the job otherwise. This, and, and, and you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dive into, you know, who's right, who's wrong, Comey, McCabe, all that jazz. It's, it's, it's a, it's a damn shame. It has tarnished the reputation and the brand that's going to take, I, you know, it's going to take years to overcome it. And, you know, I, well, I will, I will kind of dive into it a little bit. Every time the, the Bureau has had a a, a significant national embarrassment or a problem like this. Not every time, but, but most of them. If you go back and look, most often it has happened when higher ups at headquarters who are in, in the ivory tower of headquarters and believe they still can work cases and believe that they're smarter than everybody else. And maybe, maybe they are, but you know, smart is only part of the, part of the equation to get, get a case done. Every one of those, or almost every one of those, has been the result of headquarters taking over control and trying to run a case. And that's, you know, that's what went on with, 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 with not so much, well, Comey was the director, but McCabe, Strzok, and all that. And, you know, plenty of, plenty of agents have a lot more intimate knowledge about that than I do. But that's, the, that's kind of the big thing. And, and you know, the reputation like I said, it's it's like a business. It's critical to have a good reputation. I hope we can recover from it. So I hope so as That's well. That's my two cents. <laughs> I hope so as well because yesterday, just yesterday, and I know this isn't you, former CIA officer charged with spying for China, CIA. That's yesterday. And then 38 minutes ago, former FBI attorney pleads guilty in Durham probe. I don't know if you just saw this. Yeah. This just came out right now. The Justice Department unusual pro bono, so you know investigation links between Trump campaign and Russia netted its first guilty plea Wednesday as former FBI attorney Kevin Kleinsmith admitted to altering an email used to seek surveillance warrants against former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. I mean, this is some ugly yeah. stuff going on in these agencies. What do you think they need to do to recover from this and gain the credibility again? The you know, they, they, there's no magic bullet. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's stay the hell out of, stay the hell out of national scandals highlight the good work, the great, I mean, that's what we try to do with McMillions. And, and, you know, I know we'll keep coming back to that, but I, I think one of the, one of the focuses of McMillions was to highlight a case that was a success and, and, and that the agents involved weren't, you know, weren't egotistical assholes or, and, 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 and things work the way they should. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take dozens and dozens of those cases. Going back to the FBI attorney though, let, let me just, I'll, I'll kind of defend when you hear FBI attorney, that's usually a career attorney who's come in as a, as a civilian. General, I don't know this, but my, my, I'm 95% sure it's not an agent. So the agent ranks 
you know, that's, that's your career. That's all you do. You don't, you know, you don't move in and out. You don't join a law firm. You, that, that's what you do. So, but you're right. I mean, the, these, the, the, these, the, the case, the CIA case yesterday, this one today, it's, it's almost, it's almost every, you know, every week we have one of these and um, you know, it's like bad cops. I mean, you know, you got 90, I, I, you know, I heard you say on one of your, you know, your recent, uh, your recent talks that, you know, the bad cops are 1%, 99% are, are good people. Well, that 1% impacts dramatically the other 99% who are trying to do and, and generally do the right thing. So, Okay, so, you know, it's crazy you're saying that, you know, when you're talking about, the, you know, the good agents and what they're doing. I remember a long time ago, a friend of mine, he and I met when I got out of the military. He went and became a cop. And he says, Pat, I got to tell you, this badge and this gun that I carry and I walk into a restaurant changes me. It changes people. I said, what do you mean? Because I saw him went from being a nice guy, got along with everybody. And then he started snapping in restaurants, started losing his cool all the time. I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? And eventually he lost his job. He lost his badge. They took everything away from us. So what happened here? He said it does something to you. The badge and the gun does something to you. So, you know, it, it, uh, I, I, I hope there is a resolution to do something because I do think there is a need for these organizations out there to do what they're doing. I just don't think there's any need for ma manipulation, which is what's happened a little bit lately. So, so, so yeah. Chris, here, here's your resume. You, you, were a, you were a member of the SWAT, SWAT at the 1993 Branch Davidian siege in Waco, Texas, which we talked about Gary Nestor, we had it on. You were there for 51 days. You've been to uh, deploy to Egypt and later chosen to open uh, the first, I believe, FBI office in Milan, Italy, handling FBI, FBI operations there for three years, which I'm sure you had a good time in Italy. You conducted dozens of interviews with detained Al-Qaeda and Taliban leaders and operatives, which maybe we'll get to that here in a minute. But out of all these crazy things you've done, I think we have to talk about McDonald's first. For whatever reason, that one's getting the most attention. So, so this phone call comes in from the informant to, to kind of walk us through what really happened. Was it McDonald's? I heard it was really a marketing agency and McDonald's had no clue what was going on. It was more on this end. Walk us through with what happened there. Yeah, so, so you're right. And, and ultimately it was an agency, a marketing agency, but you know, we didn't know that at the time, nor do we know, nor, nor do we know the name of the person who, who was doing this crime. So you got to, let's just kind of put it in perspective here. I've got a squad of, of 10, 12 agents and we're working high priority white collar stuff, which is police corruption and, and healthcare fraud, which was a big, big, big problem back then. We get a call from an informant to one of the guys on my squad and says, guess what? McDonald's Monopoly games are corrupted. There's a guy named Uncle Jerry who's arranging for winners and stealing the pieces. And, and it's been going on forever. So easy enough to say, all right, well, what's this guy's motive? I mean, what's, you know, this, this is kind of ridiculous. How could, how could McDonald's let this happen? But it, it's, to me, it's kind of one of these things that if it's true, you can't ignore it. You, you have to, it may, it may be a remote chance, but I've got to run this down. So we start, we start getting some basic information, some names of some winners. It all checks out. The informant gave us a couple of names of winners. Turns out these winners, we were able to associate them in terms of addresses and friends and, and relatives. That's right away. Now, now, statistically, it's impossible. It's starting to check out. A lot of just, and, and you know, we can, we can talk about, you know, traditional police work, but a lot of, or, or investigative work, a lot of just nose to the grindstone investigative work that went on for a couple of months, looking at phone records, making the connections, doing the charts, et cetera. We came to a point where we had to make a decision to contact McDonald's and bring them, and, and bring them in, not knowing a whole lot of details, not knowing if McDonald's is involved, if somebody on their staff's involved, et cetera. The reason we had to bring them in, uh, the main reason, there was not a lot of reasons, but we needed to get, you know, we needed to get lists of winners. We needed their cooperation. And ultimately we wanted to go up on a wiretap, a Title III wiretap. Well, if you think about it, the games are historical, they're past. So somebody's won, they've claimed their prize and it's over. There's nothing, there's nothing going on anymore. By that time, we had, we had made some connections through phone records between winners, between what I call middlemen and 
a main guy named Jerry Jacobson, who, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, he was the, the, the mastermind behind this. He didn't work for McDonald's. He worked for a company called Simon Marketing. But again, we still don't really know the, the connections between, between him and McDonald's folks. But back to my point. So we've got to prove up this case currently. Historical records are great, but they're, they're not going to get us there per se. It's going, to take, it's going to take forever. We want McDonald's to run the game again. But for them to run it, you know, why is the FBI telling you, hey, we need you to run this game and we need to be talking to you when you're running the game in the context of that they know there's a problem. The games have been compromised. So if you're, you know, if you're a, a risk management person or an executive at McDonald's, you are now confronted with what I, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a horrible decision. It's like the, the least, what's the least worst answer? Do we tell the FBI, you know, no way, take a hike. We can't, we can't stomach this risk knowing that the case is probably not going to go away. We may run with it anyway. And McDonald's gets, gets named as they're not cooperating or we cooperate and we get in bed with them and we got to live with the consequences. And they did the latter, thankfully, and, and to their credit, because they paid, you know, they paid the consequences later on with public relations, with lawsuits, et cetera. But we couldn't have done this without McDonald's. Um, I, I, you know, I said in the show, I think we expected an immediate answer. We brought them down to, we brought them down to Jacksonville. We had them in the, in the conference room, all the executives. And we said, Hey, here's the case, you know, here's all the stuff we got. We need you to run the game again. And we thought, well, of course they're going to say, yeah, why, why, why wouldn't they? We're the FBI. We, you know, our reputation was still pretty good back then. They're going to, they're going to say yes. Well, they were kind of like, well, we got to, we got to talk about this. And off they went, they got on planes and went back and we were a little perplexed. Now I see, you know, working in the corporate world, I see exact, that was a, that was a massive decision that went all the way up to their CEO, who, again, I think made the right decision. We went up on a wiretap, recorded incredible phone calls, tied it all together. We, we, did, we did some undercover work, which I'll get into in a minute, but we were even able to tell McDonald's before the, the last winner, the winner that claimed it during the, you know, during the, ga during the game they were running, knowing it was compromised, we were able to tell McDonald's, you're going to get a call from a guy named Brown in Texas who's going to claim to be the winner a couple days before he did. We knew that because we were listening on phone calls and we, we, heard, wow. we heard the passage. We actually were able to surveil the passage of the stolen piece. That's how it, you know, that's Jacobson was, and I won't get into all the details, but, you know, Jacobson had figured out a way to essentially shoplift the winning piece in route where he was going to theoretically place it into circulation. And he would, he would switch them out, put a, a, you know, a shitty one for French fries and where the winning one was mm -hmm. supposed to be, hang on to the winning one and then take, uh, recruit one of his middlemen to find a winner who could be trusted and the, the piece would get, get passed. We were actually able to surveil based on what we had learned on the wiretap, surveil, Jacobson meet with Dwight Baker, who's, who's, who's named in this thing, in the parking lot, and our pilot saw him pass the envelope uh, in the parking lot, and then ultimately we know Baker passed it on to another guy who passed it on to the winner. So big success, a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> you know, cases don't always, we had a lot of laughs with this case, um, and you can because nobody's dying, and and, and we had some fun with it. You know, we had, an, we had, we ran an undercover operation as part of it, which we called the, the reunion of past winners. So we want to get winners from, hey, Pat, you know, you won, you won back in 1999. And, you know, we want to get you to tell your story again, because, and, and because it's such a great story. And we're going to host a reunion of winners in Vegas. It's all going to be paid for. We're going to have you in a big conference room. Brilliant. You're going to tell your story, but, in order to do that, we're going to record you right now. It's going to go on a big screen and tell us again how you, how you won. So we did a lot of that, got a lot of these people locked into lies about how they won. Um, we created a production company. It was called Shamrock Productions. And, and the byline was, because you're just lucky, which if you, <laughs> it's a little bit of, 
a little bit of tongue in cheek humor there, but, but that was the kind of, you know, that was the kind of thing. And then what happened? So big takedown, national takedown, John Ashcroft pre uh, presented in, in front of national media. Um, it was a story all over the weekend. Uh, actually it was, uh, you know, August, I think 21st, 2001 it was still kind of a story. They were rolling up indictments and, and ultimately, you know, ultimately a lot more indictments, but we all know what happened on September 11th and that, you know, that freaking change that changed everything. And the, 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 the dozens of agents who were working this went down to the two guys who had to carry it through in the prosecutor and no one, no one heard the story until two, three years ago, I got contacted by James Hernandez, who was one of the executive producers of McMillions. And he had, he, he had kind of stumbled on the story and started doing some research and felt it was a great, great story. I thought personally, I was glad to talk about it because it was always, you know, it was always one of these stories you would tell at a cocktail hour or something, you know, somebody's usually FBI, they're like, Hey, tell me a great FBI story. And you need something to kind of prompt, yeah. prompt it. And I, I would always go to McDonald's. I would say, you know, well, you know, have you ate at McDonald's lately? Yeah, of course. All right. Let me tell you about that. So I, I was always telling the story, but no one believed it. They would, no, oh, come on. That's bullshit. You're, you know, you're exaggerating, Chris. T to have James and those guys dig into it was, you know, was really fortuitous. I thought, you know, I thought they'll get a, an hour long documentary true crime thing on it. They, they did a phenomenal job digging in, finding a lot more information, victims, personal stories, other subjects that we, you know, we just, it wasn't what, really. What was the craziest part they found that you didn't know about? You're like, holy shit, what was this all about? What was the craziest thing that you found out through them, not you? Oh, yeah, that's, that, 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 boy, that's a great, that's a great question. There, there's about four or five things. Um, they, you know, if you watch it, there was, a, so, so there was, there was, there was a lot of Jerry's running around. So we had two Uncle, we, they kept talking about Uncle Jerry, and there was a guy named Jerry Colombo, you know, big, heavy Italian guy who was married to Robin Colombo. And if you watch the, if you watch McMillions, she is, she's a character. I mean, she's, you know, you just got to see, I can't even describe her. Um, she was married to him. He claimed to be a big OC guy, claimed he was connected with some families and everybody assumed, well, that's uncle Jerry. That's uncle Jerry. Well, we, we eventually figured out that there was Jerry Colombo and, and then it was Jerry Jacobson and they met through what we believe, you know, some, some organized crime connection. Jerry Colombo died, um, and in a car crash and there, there's some suspicious circumstances about that, but they, 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 and when I say Jay, they, I mean, James and Brian are producers and their, their research team, they got in and they, they dug up archive video about how Jerry Colombo was running a, a strip joint uh, up in South Carolina, that he was all over the news, that it had been, it was, they were going to close it down. He was, he was going around and around with city council and he kind of, he renamed it as a church. So it was the church of the, the fuzzy bunny or something like that. And he was able to stay open. That was, that was just these like little things that, you know, <laughs> I, you know what, frankly, Pat, I'm glad we didn't stumble on that stuff during the case because it would have diverted us. We would have, we would have been spending too much time. Well, someone's got to go, Hey, somebody's got to drive up to South Carolina and check out this fuzzy bunny thing. And we'd have never got to the finish line. Yeah, you wouldn't have, it would have been a distraction. Yeah. Uh, 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 depending on the quality of the bunnies they had, but going back to it. So, <laughs> So you're, so you're seeing these stories, and is it, is it true that Jerry, the main guy, ended up being in the McDonald commercial? Was he in the commercial himself? I, I saw something with one of the Jerry's being in a commercial, in a video. It was, a, it was the big Jerry. It was Columbo. He was, I forget where it was. That was, you know, that was another thing that they, that they dug up. Now, Jacobson, Jacobson, the main guy, kept a low profile. And if you, if you, you, know, if you watch it, or, or I'm sure the, the listeners watched it, remember, he... Jacobson was a former cop from South Florida and, you know, went out on some, on some quote unquote disability, moved up to Atlanta, but he kept, he kept a pretty low profile up there. Um, the other one, the Jerry Colombo was all over, you know, he was all over the media. Now, where is the connection with a Mormon? I saw, I heard something about the Mormon connection to this. What yeah. does that have to do with McDonald's? So, so Dwight Baker who was one of Jacobson's main, 
we call them middlemen or recruiters. So yeah. when you put this thing, you know, we, we would put it on a chart. And in the middle, you've got Jacobson and you have lines going out to the, the recruiters and the middlemen. Because Jacobson never, he never dealt directly with the winners. Obviously, that's, you know, if you're a drug dealer, you're the main kingpin. You don't want to deal with a guy on the street. You want people in the middle to distance yourself. So Baker was one of the, one of the, the most, the most recent, let's say at the time, recruiters, middlemen happened to live very close to, you know, to, to uh, Jacobson in South Carolina. Uh, they were, you know, of all places, Fair Play, that was the name of the, that was the name of the town they lived in. I mean, you couldn't make this shit up. I mean, we just kept stumbling on how, how, how in the world, what's the chances of the, the main subjects of this scam that's all about honesty and integrity living in a town called Fair Play, South Carolina. But, um, wow. <laughs> but I digress. But yeah, but he was, he was a, an elder in the Mormon church. And uh, I, I think it was, you know, ended up, I'm not sure, you know, you would get excommunicated or, or something. He's, in, you know, he's in the, um, you know, he's in the McMillions film. You know, I, hey, I will say, you know, this is, I, I, I said, when I got on this, I said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be as candid and give my opinions uh, freely. Um, there is a couple guys in that Dwight Baker is one and the other one, George Chandler, who was his, I think his adopted son. He was a winner. George Chandler was a winner. And Dwight Baker gave him the million dollar piece. Neither of these guys needed the money. First of all, if you listen to them, they, they are in this and it's, they really are working hard to make themselves seem, um, you know, sympathetic honorable, um, not quite innocent, but pretty damn close to it, uh, especially, especially Chandler. I, 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 you know, I got no room for that. Um, you know, these guys knew what they were doing. If nothing else, they might not have known, and, and this, go, this goes true for any of the winners, they might not have known that there was a Jerry Jacobson up there who was stealing the pieces, and this is who he works, and blah, blah, blah. Most of them got stories that, hey, I got a friend who got this piece, and he's going through a bad divorce and the wife can't know about it. So you take it, you claim it, and you know, you get to, you get a hundred thousand and you know, give us the rest of money. Well, okay, that's you know you're screwing somebody in that deal. You're screwing the ex-wife or somebody. So so this bit about, you know, oh, this was all, you know, this was all on the up and up. I'm not buying it. The there was a woman and she's in the um, she's in the series Gloria Brown. Uh, African-American lady in Jacksonville was friends of Robin Colombo. She was a million dollar winner. She never got, she got a fraction of the money. They, they, they made her, made her pay a bunch up front, blah, blah, blah. She got charged. Well, she didn't have the funds to hire a big high priced lawyer. She got the public defender. They pled her, they pled her out, pled her like 50, we had 52 some odd people in, in the, in the ultimate indictment. Most of them pled guilty all but about six. Um, George Chandler did not and went to trial with an expensive attorney because he could afford it. I, I just, to me, there's some inequity there. And, you know, I, I think, you know, if people are watching it it, it, it goes to your point, you know, you can't, you can't paint everybody with the same brush. There were different, you know, if anybody was close to innocent in this, it was the people, you know, the Gloria Browns of the, the, of the world. So anyway, that's my, you guys can, do you think they're ever going to bring that game back? Because I can tell you for me as a marketing campaign, it was genius. Cause I remember as a kid, you know, I worked at Burger King. So it was kind of like, well, you know, I'm about to go to McDonald's because I'm going to get these pieces. And they were sitting on our desk and we're collecting them. It's like, what do you have? What do you have? And it was always funny because you would bring your pieces to school and there was always one piece. Everybody was yeah. missing. There was yeah. always one piece. Yeah. Everybody was, it was missing. boardwalk or park place. One of them was boardwalk always, no one could get it. Place. Yeah. Yeah. We were yeah. missing those two. And like, Hey, what if we team up together? And what if we come together? Now we realize all those young 12, 13, 14 year old kids dreams were crushed by this Jerry guy <laughs> that uh, we couldn't find those pieces, but uh, give us one last crazy story until we get to the next one here. What's another crazy findings you saw uh, that happened with this, that will shock the hell out of the rest of us. Yeah, I think, I, you know, they found, they found, I don't know if it shocks the hell out of us. Um, well, no, I'll give you two of them. So if you watch it, so Doug Matthews, who everybody loves, he was the agent who worked on it and he, he's still on the job. Um, <laughs> he's, 
he's on film and, and he's quite the character, um, gets away with some F-bombs and, and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, I knew he was, you know, I knew he was a character. I, I didn't know he was quite the, uh, uh, the, the on-screen ham as, as he's turned out to be. So again, uh, that, that was kind of cool. But no, and then, you know, they, they, they the producers found uh, Jacobson's son who's estranged, interviewed him. He had nothing good to say about him. Um, things like that. They, you know, they, 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 they took a case and made a story out of it. And that, that was cool. That was cool. And there's a corporate side to it too, you know, so you've got, you know, I've seen some interviews with the producers. Uh, I don't think, I think McDonald's had another hard decision about whether to participate in the filming and production of McMillions. Again, here's this, here's this nightmare of theirs from 20 years ago. Hopefully it's all been forgotten. And now it's come back and Holy shit, HBO's going to do a story on it? Wow, that's, so. But the biggest part for me to forgive them, which in my mind, I was kind of like, well, what is wrong with McDonald's? And then it, was, it wasn't us. We hired a marketing agency. We have no clue what's going on over there. Then as a consumer, I'm like, you know what? You can't because as somebody that runs a company, I've hired marketing agencies. And one time I hired this one marketing agency for Instagram, made all these promises six years ago. And I'll never forget it was myself and a local pastor in LA. We were pretty much using the same guy. And they had this machine that they were doing that was liking pictures. And all of a sudden the hashtags they had that was liking pictures, here's a pastor getting uh, criticism for liking pictures of nude women and men and weird random things. We're like, wait a minute, we have no idea what's going on. We hired a marketing agency. So it was a very funny yet weird situation because you still had to explain yourself. So yeah. for me on the McDonald's side, I'm like, listen, if you hired a marketing agency, I can see how something like, something like this could happen. It was a brilliant marketing campaign, that's for sure. Oh yeah, they, their, revenue, their revenue would skyrocket when they ran these games. Um, they're, they're upfront about that. It was, it was a game changer, the quote unquote, a game changer on the revenue side. Chris, what's the craziest thing you've done in your, a lot of different things. If you were to say, you know, I mean, interviewing dozens of detained Al-Qaeda and Taliban leaders, what was that like? You know, and, and, and I, won't, I won't get into, you know, names and where, but here's what I would say. And I, are, I thought are, about this. Are, are they names that we should know? Yes. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. In, place, in places you'd know too. Okay. But one of the things, and I thought about this listening to Gravano, and I've thought about this too in terms of interviewing some, you know, some like Al-Qaeda leader types. And that is, had these guys wound up working for, um, you know, Leg Mason or, or, or a big firm or a company, you know, AT&T, they would have rose to the top in those organizations as, as leaders because they're, that's how they are. They're brilliant, engaging, smart people who just have a natural tendency to lead, whether it's, you know, whether you're in Al-Qaeda or you're in La Costa Nostra or, you know, on the good side of the law, the CEO of the company. That, that was always, you know, I, I came away a few times from interviews like that thinking, you know, wow, that guy, you know, it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame he wound up, you know, wound up where he's at now because, you know, a, a couple, of, couple of good breaks, he very easily would have, you know, could have led, you know, Saudi Aramco or something. It, it's Interesting. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Can you give me, give me, a, give me, a, okay, go to the person that you think about without giving a name and what was impressive about him when he sat down with them? I think just not, not just, not just his history, but the fortitude in terms of overcoming hardships, like bad, bad hardships, bad um, treatment, um, keeping, you know, maybe, maybe keeping some degree of sanity. Um, engaging, very, you know, very astute to um, where we were coming from, questions, um, funny, sense of humor at times, which, you know, counts for a lot. Um, yeah, no, I, I just, you could just tell. And, and I think, I think you notice this with like a Gravano or these guys, guys who, who, who rose to the top of an organization that a lot of people get killed along the way rising to the top if you're stupid bad things happen to you or you or you get you get ostracized same thing um 
So when you interviewed these guys, were you on their turf or were they on our turf? They're on our turf. They're on our turf when you interviewed them. Yeah. And is this after they got caught or is this nothing's happened yet and they were willing to sit down with you? You know, I, I've, I've, I've done both. Okay. I, I've had the, I've had the, you know, the, the pleasure to do or pleasure, the, the, whatever you want to call it, the, the opportunity to do a little, little of both, little of both. Um, you know, and, and yeah, no shit. There's, there's others out there who are, you know, maniacal savages and, you know, and they're, you know, they're where they are, but, um, yeah. It's, interesting. It's, Very interesting. Being, being where you are right now watching, do you still follow the news of what's going on or no? Are you following everything or not really not at the pace you did before? I probably follow it. I, I'm selective about it. So like what, you know, what kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm conscious and cautious enough about what I watch to know that, you know, certain things are stressful to watch and taxing and don't, don't add to learning. Now watch, what do you not watch? You know, I, I, I mean, I, I think, so I work in corporate security now for a, for a, a mall company. So, so, so some of the, some of the footage of, of the rioting and looting hits close to home. It really does. And, you know, we've, we've lived that and, and continue to live it. So, and, and by watch, you know, I'm talking about not just TV, but social media. So, you know, I think some of, you know, some, some video footage where you're getting part of the story or it's being spun a certain way. Um, I, I, I'm cautious about, about that. And, and, and you know, I, th I think you brought it up on, on one of your earlier talks. You got to consider who's, you know, the motives of people behind this. So I, I think you, you said, you know, is, isn't, doesn't it make sense that China benefits or, or Russia benefits or the Middle East benefits from you know, the, the, the scenes of chaos in the street? I, you know, hey, it's going on and that's unfortunate, but riling, riling people up in an emotional state by watching it on a, on a, on a screen hundreds of miles away doesn't really, doesn't really help the problem. And it's certain, and I'm, I, Hey, I'm selfish. I'm always looking out for, you know, my well-being, and it doesn't do me any good to, to walk out of the room with high blood pressure because of something I, you know, something I saw. Um, Makes sense. I, as but, an FBI agent yourself, what are your thoughts about this whole defunding police situation where, you know, you're, you're getting commissioners that are resigning and you're getting Patrick J. Lynch, president of the New York Union, is coming out and saying for the first time ever, we're coming out publicly and saying we're supporting Trump. And it's, it's a very weird dynamic where, yeah. you know, some are being criticized, some, you know, Seattle is just deciding to fully defund and go a complete different direction. What do you think about what's going on there? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's incredibly complicated. Obviously, obviously, blanket calls to defund the police are, you know, a reactionary I mean, do we want do we want New York to return to the way it was in 1974? No, I don't. I, you know, I don't think anybody anybody would agree with that. Um, you know, I think changes have changes probably need to be made. Um, here, here's where I'll go with this, and I, I made some notes to talk about it. One of the things, let me, let me kind of go back and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you kind of the, where I'm going with this. So 2015, we had the tragic shooting in San Bernardino uh, at the, uh, it was like a community center. Guy was, you know, guy was a terrorist and, you know, we, we you know, they had been, him and his wife had been back and forth to Pakistan a few times. Mm -hmm. Terrible shooting, right? Fifth, I, you know, 14, 15 people killed, the worst of the worst. I'm watching it on the news. It's, it's over. Right. They, they, they caught the guy. He's down on the highway somewhere. The guys who or the police officers who who stopped him were, you know, patrol guys, highway patrol guys. They end up in a shootout with him. The footage on TV is dozens, if not hundreds of fully armed SWAT guys walking up and down the streets of San Bernardino with long guns, with all the equipment, with all the fancy gear, with the armored trucks, all that shit. So keep that in mind. I ran, I ran, a, I ran a, a JTTF, a Joint Terrorism Task Force, uh, for the you know, last, last 50, whatever, 10, 12 years of my career. And the thing that's missing in, in, in that image of the San Bernardino is 
You've got all these guys and millions of dollars of equipment thrown at something that having them all out there after the fact isn't, doesn't prevent it. What would, what would have prevented it? You got to ask yourself, how would, where could we have spent those resources to potentially prevent that? And it's not, you know, it's not, and I was a SWAT guy. I love this shit. I mean, I, you know, I lived it. I, I was into the scene, you know, the, Hey man, run, shoot, jump, work out, what get paid for it, man. That's, <laughs> that's a great deal. Get fancy equipment. You know, it's almost like in, in, in the FBI, it's like in high school, right? There's, you know, extracurricular activities. And then there's the guys on the football team and they're the SWAT guys. Right. So, you know, you got a little bit of that. So I, I was there, I get it. And I understand, I understand the need, but, but looking at it from a law enforcement executive or a manager, all those millions of dollars for sexy and fancy equipment, wouldn't it have been better to go into the salaries and, and, and of analysts and, and software and, you know, the intelligence work, paying informants, all that stuff that is not sexy, it's boring as hell. Many times it doesn't pan out to anything. You may prevent things, you don't even know you've prevented them. And I know, I, I, I know we've done that just, just by having a presence, interviewing somebody through some intelligence. So this goes to my point, the, the, the broader point, which we see today, and that's this, you hear this concept, it's, it's kind of come into vogue lately, um, and I, I'd like to think I, you know, I was one of the pioneers of thinking about it, not that I, not that I raised my voice about it, but this, this militarization of police. And you, know, and, and you see it now where you've got, um, it, it, it drives a wedge in, in a community where you have what looks to be an occupying military force. Now, no doubt about it, you need to have, you need to have SWAT teams here and there in big cities, deal with an active shooter, et cetera. But, and, and, and so the question is, how did we get here? How did, how, did, how did we get to where every small town police department has an armored vehicle and a team with long guns and maybe a helicopter and all kinds of other, again, you know, fancy tactical stuff? And, and, and I can't take credit for this. It's coming from a, a guy named Radley Balco who wrote a book. It's called, you know, The Rise of the Warrior Cop. And he points to the, the, the funding Two, two, two sources, military surplus stuff under a program was a 1033 program where local state, local law enforcement could go to the military and say, Hey, we need an armored vehicle. You got any extra ones? Well, yeah, we just brought a whole bunch of them back from Iraq. So take it, take it wrong with it. So now they got an armored vehicle. They might get other stuff. And then post nine 11, you know, DHS funding grants to have this kind of preparation. And if you're, you're given the choice, you're running a small police department and you've got, you know, you might be a sheriff or something and you've got voters, you're trying to impress city council. You're going to spend that money on a fancy team that can repel out of helicopters, even though you're never going to use them. Or I'm going to hire, you know, I'm going to hire three kids with PhDs in computer science and analytical intelligence to grind through records, or I'm going to hire you know, I'm going to hire investigators or agents who are adept at working informants, who might have the language, who, who can get into these groups. That's where I think we've got to, we've got, we've reached that point. And, you know, and to my, the broader point, I think that those images of fully armed police departments have, have been, you know, they've been counterproductive. They fuel the, they fuel the narrative of defunding the police. So, by the way, I like what you're saying. A lot saying. of people are not going to agree with me, but that's it's fine. I, I understand. That's the whole reason why we're having a conversation. I'm reading a book right now called "The Man Who Saw the Market: How Jim Simmons Launched the Quant Revolution." The guy's worth about twenty-four billion dollars, and uh, uh, when he came out, he started a company and hired. Uh, I think he was working for some university, and he ended up hiring the best mathematicians in America and eventually in the world. And he brought them together. And eventually he started a firm and he brought all these mathematicians to study the market, to see what happens with the trends. Then he figured out a formula. I think he ended up averaging 65% return over a 20 year period, which is insane to be thinking about that kind of a money. And no wonder he's worth $24 billion today, but he hired mathematicians. A lot of that today is predictive analytics. So what you're saying today makes a lot of sense on 
making those investments to see if that can be prevented. Here's a follow up question to you. Could George Floyd's event have been prevented? Could that have been prevented? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, I think the obvious, you know, the, you know, and I, I'm just, I'm just kind of parroting, you know, things I've heard and read, throw maybe a little common sense on it. You know, you've got, you've got an officer who has a history of discipline problems. You, you, you I've heard people say, and, and even good friends of mine who, you know, we, we've talked and they're on the other side of this issue. And they say, there's, there's a thin blue line. There's a blue line of silence. So, you see maybe a little bit of that with these, these other officers putting up with, with George, uh, what's his, not Floyd, what's the, the officer's name? I forget. Um, Derek? Are you talking about Derek? Derek uh, yeah, Derek. So, so they put up with him. They know, he's, they know he's a hothead. They know he's a problem. And, and they, you know, they choose, hey, we got to go. We got to get along. We're all part of the same team here. And we're not going to say or do anything because that's just not what we do. That, you know, how do you break that? Well, and I'm not, I'm not holding the FBI up as an example, but within the FBI, if you are aware of misconduct by somebody or, you know, they, they violated some policy procedure, you know, they're, they're, they're violated computer pro thing or they're, or they're acting out. There's something, there's something wrong. And it, it blows up into an issue, a disciplinary issue or something like that. And and, and they, they, the investigation, the internal, determines that, hey, Chris Graham, you know, you knew, you know, you knew that Pat had a habit of, of, of really yelling at people and, and, and he hit this person once on the back of the head during an interview. You were there. You know that's against policy. You saw it. You didn't do anything. Guess what? You're in just as much, you're not, maybe not in as much trouble, but now your career is on the line. And I, I think some police departments have variations of that but but you've got to make it so and you, you you take the personality out of it so if if you know i could say to you know to you all right hey hey pat you know i had to tell them what i saw it's not it's not personal i don't have you know but i got to look out for my career i can't you know i got a family to feed but then you're a snitch if you do that right well, so then i i know but you got to take it out of that you've got to make it hey I didn't want to be a, I didn't want to, you call me a snitch. I, I didn't, the, the agency, the, the same agency we both work for, the same agency that pays our salary, put these requirements on me just like they put them on you. Let if me you ask saw you something, I expect you to, 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 to say about me. Yeah, how much sensitivity is it? You know how you see these movies and in the movies they show a bad cop, two bad cops and a good cop. The two bad cops go and rob a guy of cocaine and $200,000 of cash. And they decide to split it. And the third guy doesn't want to take it. He's like, dude, I don't want to have anything to do with this. You almost see the other two guys doing whatever they can to put this guy out. And they're worried about him being a snitch. And his career is pretty much done. Right. So there's the pressure of almost not accepting. Now, this is Hollywood. So I'm not in the world to know what happens. It almost seems like there's pressure for the good cop to also participate in the bad behavior. Because if you don't, they can end up, you know, turning on you and you got a reputation coming back. So I guess what I'm trying to ask here is, so we have Derek Chauvin, right? The guy who put the uh, knee on uh, George's uh, neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. What, what do you do to see these trends and say, listen, because I'm telling you, when I'm telling you this friend of mine was the calmest guy, we'd go to nightclubs. He would talk to girls like this. Hey, what's your name? So this, and he was so smooth. He was so chill. He was the calmest guy I knew. When I became a cop, then all of a sudden he went more like this and like this. And one day we went out, started telling people off, hey, bitch. Hey, bitch. I'm like, I've never seen you talk like this before. What happened to you? And I said, I sat him down one day. I said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'm a little concerned about you. He said, What's, why is that? I said, I don't know what the hell is going on with you, but you're acting like the world owes you something. And he got emotional. He said, Pat, I'm telling you this badge and this uh, gun is doing something. Now, this is coming from a guy that was in the military for three years. 101st Airborne Division, I had a saw weapon, I had an M16. I mean, I'm telling you from a guy who was in the military. And, but I saw it did something to some people. How do you control and 
be able to read somebody about to go the direction of being a bad cop, bad agent. How do you catch that? What are some signs to look for? Well, I got to ask you, you know, you, you've known this guy. You said you knew him before he was a cop. Oh, yeah. Nicest and guy in the there world. There was nothing. There was nothing in his nothing, personality. Nothing. Nothing. He was a sweetheart from a loving family. Mom and dad never got a divorce. My parents got a divorce. So you could have seen my temper and said, well, it comes from his this, this. But nothing was raised in America, went to a nice school, had a brother, they got along. He was with the same girl since he was 16 years old. Nothing happened with them. He loved her, she loved him, David. What the streak of how in five years, boom, like this, I, I couldn't understand it. I, I, I'd like to, I'd hopefully like to think he's just the anomaly and that, you know, I mean. I, so what you're, you're saying, is, but what you're saying so, so based on what you're saying, you're making me think that a lot of the part of, Having a Derek Chauvin is in the hiring process and yeah. in the background check. Is that where you're it's going? It's both. It's both. Okay. Right. Okay. So you weed you weed them out in the hiring process. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these, they do psych tests, things like that. I think some of these background, you know, the background stuff usually pretty cursory, right? I mean, they're not getting into, yeah. hey, Pat, you know, you knew this guy, you knew this guy in middle school. Um, you know, did he ever, did he ever get in a fight? You know, did what, what do you remember about that? Did that, that kind of that kind okay, of background? So fair enough. So what questions give you red flags? So ask me the questions. What are some of the questions that would give you a good scoring on your end to you say know, predictive analytics? Why this is this guy, we can't hire this guy. This guy's a little bit of a loose cannon. You know, you I, I've watched some of your interviews and you you should you probably should have been an FBI agent because you do a great job of of two things, right? You you have your facts, but you listen and Often it's an open-ended question. So, I mean, I, I can't off the top of my head come up with like specific background questions, but if I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing a background on Derek Chauvin. He's, get, he's ready to get into the police department and you're, you know, you're his best friend. You've known, you've known him for forever. You went to high school together. I'm just, you know, I'm using this hypothetically. I'm going to ask you, just talk about him. Tell me about him. And, you know, oh, oh, he played, you know, he played linebacker. Um, you know, tell me about how he played and just try to work off of that and get, you know, get bits and pieces into a personality. And hopefully, you know, hopefully something comes out. Not always it does. I mean, you, you, your friend's a classic example. I mean, something must have happened on the job or, or there was something latent in there. I think many of these, you know, many of these guys, there was always clues. It's, it's just like, you know, it's, it's like when somebody turns out to be a pedophile or, you know, or something you know, somebody shoots something up, people come out, oh, well, yeah, there was always something a little, you know, if you really press it, there was something about that guy. I think with a lot of these cops who, who really go bad, there, it was always, it was always something there. Now, that said, I've had a couple of, I've had, I have friends and the job changes them. There's no doubt about that, that, you know, you work in a, you know, you work in a, in a difficult environment where the, the community does not like you, and, and you are a sign of bad things. I mean, when, when, you know, shit, I get nervous now. I, I get nervous when I get pulled over and I got no reason to, I, you know, it's not, you know, so you, you're people involved in that environment. It takes a toll on people and the, 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 it's how they deal with it. And Chris, is there tenure in PD and FBI and all of that, all those different organizations, there's such a thing as a tenure or no? You know, most police departments, I, I, they have some, but not, you know, I think it varies. It varies from department to department. I mean, I, I, you know, I know guys who are still police officers into their, you know, late fifties and sixties, FBI, you're out the door, you know, you're out the door at 57 and you're. No, no. What I'm asking is what I'm asking no, is like a tenure model of, you know, how teachers after 10 years, you know, they can't get fired. And, you know, you have to like really a 42 year old teacher has to, you know, make a pass at a 16-year-old boy yeah. or girl to get fired. Is there 10 years in, L in PD and uh, in FBI? Well, a lot of the PDs, remember, are union. So the, the, the rank and file patrol officers are, have union protections. So that's, that's effectively, you know, the same as, as tenure. Um, so so that, first of all, this, this then, this brings up the negative power of uh, union and negative effects of union. Because for me, like I look at some teachers, okay, you see these videos of some teachers that got terrible attitude towards kids, but there's nothing you can do about them. You can't fire them because they have tenure. I, I think one of the best things that there is in business is there is no tenure. 
if you're in a company, you screw up in your 12th year, you can get fired. You know, yeah. I'm a CEO of a, a good sized company. If I mess up, I'm fired. It doesn't matter what I do. I can be fired as a CEO. And I think that element of not having to fear cops, teachers, fire, you know, FBI agents, not having that fear of, dude, if I screw up, I could get fired. Oh, I'm locked in. We're good. I can go around and push people around. The, 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 the way it's also set up and the comp structure and the way it's set up with the protection for them, I, I also think uh, um, th there's an element of it where for me, it's kind of like nowadays, you know, cops are going around working with criminals and they're doing their job. Some cases they're doing their job and they're, they're the ones constantly being held accountable rather than the other way around. So there's a fear of, dude, I don't even want to do anything because they're going to say racism and I'm going to get arrested. But I think there's also the other part where the way the format is set up with accountability, a lot of these guys, cops are, uh, you know, not worried about somebody holding them accountable. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think that's, part, that's one of a number of factors. Leadership, you know, the culture and leadership within a department makes, makes a big difference. Um, I, back to the, you know, back to the uh, Derek Coven and, and Floyd. One of the things that, and I just, I just happen to remember this, I want to bring it up. You know, they worked at a nightclub together, right? I don't, I haven't really scrubbed into that, but you know, uh, Floyd was Floyd was doing security there. Uh, Derek was was doing off-duty police work. Um, guys, I know who are you know good friends of mine, NYPD detectives, uh, Washington D.C. They will tell you that is a that is a venue for trouble for a law enforcement officer is those kind of nightclubs because. You know, first of all, you're getting paid. You're get, usually getting paid pretty good to sit outside in your patrol car, stand at the door. There's, you know, you find me, you find me a club like that where there's not some illegal activity going on, where there's not some drug dealing and some prostitution going on. You got to look the other way. It, and it, it is, it is an environment that, you know, that, that sucks people in. Um, you know, if it's a, if it's an adult entertainment, if, if, you know, if it's a strip joint, there's, you know, there's young strippers around, guys get tangled up in there. So I, I just think, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I just wonder, you know, what kind of history did those two have back, you know, from back at that club? Was there, was there a beef over, you know, over, over a drug deal? Was there a beef over, you know, some, some, you know, some girl, somebody was screwing? I don't know, but I, I just know from watching it firsthand and, and plenty of friends who are cops, Nightclubs, strip clubs, those kind of places put a cop in a bad position. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, final question and before we wrap up, Chris, what's your biggest concern right now with the current climate we have in America? You know, I, I, here, I've used this before and people, people ask me, hey, what do you think of, you know, what do you think of what's going on? And I say, if somebody asked you, and this is extreme, I, I get it. But if somebody asked you 20 years now, if somebody asked you 10 years ago, what does revolution look like? What would revolution today look like to you? Name five things that, that would entail revolution. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like the, the Revolutionary War where they get the red coats and we're, you know, we're fighting it out over, you know, Bunker Hill or anything like that. But name five things. You would have deep, deep racial divisions, rioting, looting protests, false information, narratives, media split down the middle, groups occupying zones and, and, and an unwillingness of authorities to either deal with them or an inability to deal with them. My guess is, had somebody asked that, if I had asked somebody that question, you know, 10 years ago, they probably would have named a few of those things and maybe something else. And I'd say, well, now, what do we have? We have those, we have some, some or all of those things going on. It's, it's, it's pretty damn scary because, you know, revolution is a, is a strong word. Um, so I, I'm, there, there's part of me that's optimistic. I mean, you know, there, there's always the things are, things always seem to work out, but, but this, this just seems, this seems tough. Um, you know, I think I've, I've even had personally, I've even had conversations with people who, and, and I'm not, I'm not politically 
leaning big time one way or the other. I'm, I think I'm probably part of the big bell curve in the middle, but I am former law enforcement and I, you know, I lean that way where I've had conversations that have, my intent was to let's find a middle ground here. Let's, you know, we're friends. We can talk through this that have, I've walked away feeling, feeling pretty shitty about it. Cause they went, they went, they didn't go well. That, that to me is, that's really concerning that, you know, that people who family members even that, that have, you know, bound by blood or been friends forever, that, that these conversations that they can't, you know, that people have conversations and people leave upset. That's, that's the, you, I just, I kind of worked my way into your answer there. The, the answer, well, that's what concerns me. That makes sense. I mean, it is uh... Weird times. It's divisive. It seems like there's two gangs. But uh, if you look yeah. at the numbers, 42% of Republicans are not going to move. They're going to vote right. 44% of Democrats are not going to move. They're going to vote left. 4% of the Green and the Libertarians are going to stick to their guns. That's about 90%. It's the 10% that's going to elect the next president. That's simple as that. It's the 10% of America right now that's going to elect either Biden and Kamala or uh, Trump and um, Pence. And, and, and that, tell me, tell me who you think that 10% is, who, who are, you know, because I'm probably in there somewhere. I think. I, think, I think you're probably in there based on which I don't know you well, but based on what you're saying is you're probably a center right person. You're probably somebody that's center right. Uh, uh, I'm military. I'm also center right myself, but that 10%, you know, you got the entrepreneurs, who may be socially left, but economically they're conservative. Okay, so they're going to be kind of sitting there saying, "Let's see what's going to be happening over here." You got the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, baby boomers who may be socially conservative, but economically a little bit liberal because they need the Medicare, Medicaid, they need the health, they need all that other stuff. So they may vote for somebody that's going to mm -hmm. take care of their health insurance. So that's a big audience with baby boomers. Seventy-six million of them. You have. You know, the folks who don't follow any politics and could care less, but they're willing to vote and they're just kind of going to vote, quite frankly, on the simplest thing, like who they like more. And it's not even that complicated. But that 10 percent is going to determine our next president. And that next president, the next four years, one is planning on taking capital gains to 15 percent, which is Trump. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other one is going to plan on taking taxes to a whole different level at a higher level. So economically, you know who that's going to hurt and who that's going to benefit. And uh, one just said the other day to Cardi B that he wants to make college free for any family making less than $125,000 a year income for their kids, which that's 90% of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I mean, taxes are going to be going up the way we're going. Right? It's such a dramatically, like when Bill Clinton became president, I voted for him. I, mm -hmm. He's the first president I shook hands with. I'm like, dude, okay. I mean, he's a capitalist. This is a, yeah. we, we, him and Newt made it work similar to what Reagan and Tip O'Neill made it work. Reagan and Tip O'Neill, two Irishmen would go out and hash it out and come back and come up with something and they would talk shit to each other privately and publicly, but yeah. if things out, you know, things kind of cleared up. Right now it's very weird. It's very, very weird. Yeah. Uh, where we are today. So I don't know what's going to happen. We will see. Uh, my goal today, my main outcome of this entire interview was one thing. My goal was for you and I to be able to solve every single problem in the world. I think we failed. So uh, I don't think we solved every problem in the world, but I think we're, <laughs> we're starting the conversation and people can start having a conversation with each other, hopefully in a civil manner, so uh, we can get some more clarity. But Chris, thank you so much for taking the time for being a guest over here with us. How can people find you, by the way? What is it? Should we just put the link to drive it to your website or where would you like people to come and get a hold of you? Yeah. So, you know, I, um, I have, I have a sort of a website and it's, it's more of a hobby fun. It's called G man resources.com. You can put it up there. We'll talks it a little bit, talks a little bit about me. Um, lean more on the entertainment side, what I'm, you know, what I'm doing and working on a couple of, a couple of projects that hopefully will be, uh, be entertaining maybe not so much as McMillions, but worth watching. It's got some stuff about my story that I, I, I wrote over time and wrote that more to answer, you know, people, people ask, Hey, what about the FBI? What was it like? I'm like, well, just read, you know, read, read the, my story part. I try to make it a little entertaining and fun, but that's, yeah, that's, I'm around, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, 
We're going to put all those links below. Look, if, if you're, if you're, you know, subtly dropping a marketing campaign or alluding to a new uh, documentary coming up about the church of the fuzzy bunny, I'm sure there's going to be a big audience that's going to want to learn more about the church of the fuzzy bunny. <laughs> but the, if it's just other things, we're going to put the link below to your site. Yeah. We're also going to put the link below to make millions. So uh, if you haven't seen it, it's on HBO. You can go watch that as well. The six uh, series of uh, that documentary with McMillions. And aside from that, Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on Value Team. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise, Patrick. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Look forward Anytime. to talking again soon. Anytime. Take care. McMillions. Huh? One guy named Jerry takes down $24 million over 12 years with this Monopoly game that McDonald's comes out with. And this 26-year FBI agent, very, very interesting stories to be thinking about. If you enjoyed today's interview with Chris, there's two other interviews I want you to watch. One is with Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, if you've seen the movie. If you've never watched this interview, he's the one that took down five families, and he was an informed, he was an insider for undercover for six years. And the other one is an interview I did with another FBI agent, McGowan, who went up and negotiated with the Sinaloa cartel, and his stories are crazy on a whole different side. If you want to listen to this, click over here. If you want to listen to Joe Pisson, click over here. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.